episode 34 of the DNC podcast, Friday edition. We are back. Dustin, how's Friday treating you so far? I'm good, man. It's been an early one, so a little tired, but so excited for the content today. NFL is about a week away. I think we're, what, one Sunday away from football, so I'm pumped, man. We got the uh, the Golden State Buccaneers this year, which, uh, which is going to be exciting to watch. Obviously, I'm still going to be rooting for my Patriots, but... Their offseason, like, I can't remember an NFL team ever going this all in on paper. Like, you see it in other sports. You see it in baseball. You'll see, like, the Yankees have a absolutely crazy offseason. We've seen it in NBA where you have, like, different superstars team up and things like that. But on an NFL level, I've never seen anything even close to the accumulation of talent, not just with, you know, braiding the offseason, then trading for Gronk, but their draft and then Leonard Fournette just falls into their lap. I mean, I'm not normally someone who jumps on the hype team, but I don't see how this team doesn't at least make the playoffs and potentially go really, really far. What are your thoughts on kind of what Tampa's been doing this offseason? So first and foremost, are you drinking coffee or are you sticking with the water and organic lemon juice? So I have water right when I get up. But as soon as the water is gone, it's it's straight to the uh, straight to the cold brew. So, secondly, we have football on Thursday. Chiefs Texans is the first game of the season. That's going to be fun. So, a rematch of the divisional round game last year, where the Texans blew a massive lead. I think it was like a twenty-four point lead, and so that's going to be a fun matchup. But I'm happy football's back. And then to your question, I think that. Tampa Bay. Okay, here's the thing about sports. Adding a bunch of names to a roster sounds amazing in theory. However, if it's really going to be up to Bruce Arians and that staff to utilize guys like LaShawn McCoy, Leonard Fournette, Gronk, effectively and efficiently on the offensive side of the ball. So on paper, this looks amazing. You got Mike Evans and Chris Godwin as well. So I didn't forget about those guys. And OJ Howard, right? So you got two elite tight ends. You got basically two elite or two great players at pretty much every position. So Leonard Fournette, LaShawn McCoy, and I still like Ronald Jones the third. So that's you got basically a running back by committee. Can't go wrong with either of those guys. OJ Howard, you also got Gronk. Then you got Chris Godwin and you got Mike Evans. So Tommy's probably had the most weapons in his entire career with this squad. So it's going to really come down to how they utilize those guys. But I really feel like Tom and Bruce Arians, both of those great minds can put this thing together. And I think it's going to work. A lot of people I think are trying to be, they're trying to get out in front of this and be like, Oh, I I saw somebody say that Tampa is not even going to make the playoffs unless they're decimated by injuries. I just don't see how they don't make the playoffs. I think that Bruce Arians system is so great for Tom Brady. A lot of people are saying, well, Tom doesn't have the arm strength he once had, and Bruce Arians likes to push the ball downfield. I think you're going to be very surprised at how well Tom does in this system. I think they're going to win at least 10 games. I think this team has a chance to go to the Super Bowl. When you have a guy like Tom Brady, I don't care if he's 42, 43, 49, he's the best ever. So there's nothing that's going to surprise him this season. As far as defenses, there hasn't been a defense that he hasn't seen in probably at least the last decade. So to think that because he went to Tampa – he's not going to be successful without Bill. I think Bill's going to struggle without Tom. And for me, I would love to see Tom have success because I've, I've really been disappointed in how Bill has handled Tom Brady. There's been some stuff this week. I, you know, off the air, you and I talked about this when I sent you the thing about Bill Belichick and Tom Brady having issues going back to 2010. So 10 years ago, the kind of rift between the two started. And Tommy was actually ready to leave after they lost the Super Bowl to the Eagles few years back. And I would, I love Tom. I think he's a class act, a guy that's really been the best at what he does for a very long time. And to be treated the way that he was by Bill, as though he's just another guy. You've never seen that in any sport. You look at Michael Jordan, you look at any player in any other sport that even a guy like Wayne Gretzky in hockey or in baseball, Mike Trout. I mean, you're not seeing that type of treatment towards not just a superstar, but the best that's ever played the game. And so I'm really rooting for Tom and pulling for Tom. And I know you probably won't like me saying this, but it's not that I want the Patriots to suffer this year. I just think Bill Belichick's ego needs to be put in check. 
it's going to be really interesting to see um, the dynamic in both situations because I think they were both important to the success of New England. I still give a little bit more to Brady because I think at the end of the day, like the players make the plays. I think a lot of good coaches say like, hey, I coach and I put people in position to make plays. But at the end of the day, it's the players making the plays. The main reason I don't see all of the negative attention drawn to Tampa is because there's been a lot of veteran quarterbacks who have gone to other places and been successful. Like Manning went to the Denver Broncos and he had arguably like his best two years of his career before he got kind of injured. And then even Favre going to Minnesota. I mean, they're in the NFC championship game, I believe, back when there was Bounty Gate with the Saints. I mean, they were really close to a Super Bowl. And these were players that just had one short offseason. And both those rosters were good. And Denver was really good defensively. They had Demarius Thomas on the outside. They had decorate wide receiver as well. But Brady has Gronk, Evans, Godwin, OJ Howard, now Fournette, Ronald Jones. They're absolutely stacked. To me, I feel like it's more Brady hate because there's a lot of guys out there that just don't like Brady because of his success. And you look at anyone who's been successful for 10, 15, 20 years, you want to kind of see them come crashing down. The other quarterback battles that came out this week were really interesting to me. Haskins obviously won the job in Washington. Going into that, I thought Alex Smith may get the nod early just because Ron Rivera has seem to really like veteran leadership. He's a big defensive guy. And so with Washington, I thought this may be a situation where they start Alex Smith early to kind of get the team running, install the defense, and then maybe have Haskins come in maybe week five, week six. It seems like they're going all in on Haskins. I have to believe, look, at you took Haskins last year in the first round, but with this upcoming draft, there's a lot of potential talent at the quarterback position so if I'm Washington, you you got to see what you have from Haskins. I'm not a huge Haskins supporter. Um, I think he's really raw. I was honestly shocked he went in the first round. But I think what Washington's trying to show right now is, hey, we took him in the first round. We need to figure out if he's our guy. And if not, we're probably going to move on either this draft or the following draft. I don't understand the Dwayne Haskins hype. I've never understood it. It shows you that with college football, you can really have one great year and you're probably going to go in the first round as a quarterback because – We've seen the NFL transition from really a veterans league to a very young league. You've seen quarterbacks now get the opportunity to start week one. Very rarely now are we seeing guys sit an entire year. Patrick Mahomes, I really believe, benefited from that because I think he was also very raw when he came out of Texas Tech. If you disagree with me, then you don't understand football because there's nobody that thought Patrick Mahomes was going to be what he was. And he went to the perfect situation. And he got to sit for a year behind Alex Smith. And Alex Smith, to me, is, has been disrespected his entire career. I don't think he's an elite quarterback, but I believe that he could have if he had consistency throughout his career, if he came into the league and had a head coach like Andy Reid in that system to start his career, I think we would view and see Alex Smith in a very different light. But he's a very intelligent quarterback. He understands the X's and O's of the game, and that really did help Patrick Mahomes. And again, if you don't want to take my word for it, that's totally fine. But this past Super Bowl, during media day, Patrick Mahomes alluded to that. He said that having Alex Smith in his corner for his first year helping him and mentoring him really made a difference in his in his career and, and really propelled him to what he did the last two years in the NFL. And so, you know, when I look at a guy like Dwayne Haskins, he could benefit from a guy like Alex Smith as well. But it, when I look at his game, when I look at the eye test, what does he do that's really great? He's not mobile. I understand he lost like 15 pounds this offseason. I don't know why people think because somebody loses weight, they're all of a sudden going to be a great quarterback. It doesn't make any sense to me. Big Ben's been overweight for a decade and he's a goat. So I don't understand why people think that losing weight is it correlates to you being a great quarterback. So the last time that I checked, yes, it's great to be in shape. Yes, it's great to decrease your body fat, body fat percentage. But ultimately, that's not going to help you throw the football or read a defense. So when I look at Dwayne Haskins' games last year, right? People are like, well, the last seven games of the season, he had the highest QB QBR in the league. And I go, okay, well, let's see how that translates this season. I understand that he's not in the best situation, so let me not just bash him completely. He had really a rough situation with the head coaching carousel last season. Jay Gruden got fired halfway through the season, and then ultimately, they don't have a ton of weapons, okay? So 
when I look at the situation for him, it's not the best, but if he's as good as everybody's saying that he is, then on a level, he should be able to at least overcome it on a level and show signs of, hey, this guy could be a quarterback in the NFL and be a starter for a very long time, like Daniel Jones showed last season. Daniel Jones dealt with a ton of injuries, a bad offensive line, receivers basically going in and out. You have guys like Golden Tate was out the first four or five games of the season due to a suspension. Then you have a guy like Sterling Shepard, who is hurt every year of his career. He's a solid player, not an elite player. Evan Ingram was basically his number one target. Saquon was hurt last year. And really, I know that from a from a front office standpoint and an organizational standpoint, the Giants are a class, a first class organization, and the Washington football team now is not per se, but he also dealt with bad coaching. So you could tell Daniel Jones from an eye test standpoint is ready to play in this league at a high level. And I just don't see that Dwayne Haskins. And I thought Alex Smith was going to get the nod as well, but I think it was just too early with no with no preseason, the way that this offseason has gone. It was just too fast. So I understand the move. And I think to your point, they do need to see what they have in Haskins because they did draft him in the first round last year. And ultimately you need to give a guy at least at least a solid year and a half, two years to see what he is because nobody's going to, very rarely, unless you're an elite talent like Andrew Luck, very few guys are going to come into the league day one and be elite. And so, or at least show that they can be elite. I give him that benefit of the doubt. However, I believe that the over-under for Haskins getting benched in six games is going to be, I'm taking the under in that. I think he'll get benched before six games uh, into the season. So we'll have to see how that that plays out. But but for, for Haskins, I think it's going to be a quick, I think he's on a short leash. I think he gets the whole year. And the only reason no I think shot. that is you look at Rivera's first year, he's not going to get fired in his first year. And so if you only play him six games, it's not enough film for a team, in my opinion, to bell on a first round pick. I mean, first round picks, not only like how much. Not even Blaine Gabbert. Yeah, but I, I think, I mean, you have to admit, I think he's more talented than Blaine Gabbert. I think from an arm strength standpoint, I think athleticism, they are probably about the same. The biggest thing with Haskins and why I didn't understand them going first round on him is he only had one year at Ohio State. And when you're playing at a top five powerhouse like Ohio State, you're going to put up numbers. When you look at, say, like, let's go to the Chargers situation with Tyrod Taylor and Justin Herbert, right? Herbert had four years of starting, and still, the reason he didn't come out after his junior year was because he was so inconsistent at times and so up and down, and he's a guy that you had four years of tape on, and my ceiling for him is super high, but my floor for him is also really, really low because he's been so inconsistent. So for me, that's always been the biggest thing with Haskins is, I have no idea what he is. And so because of that, and I look at Ron Rivera and I go, you're in your first year, you're going to be safe for at least two or three. If I was him, I'd 100% know he's not my guy because teams don't like drafting quarterbacks every two or three years. I mean, you look at Jacksonville, the reason they took Leonard Fournette and not Deshaun Watson was because they took Blake Bortles two or three years ago. And so a lot of times teams want to give players two or three years to show what they can do. And my thought is in Washington, if he only gets six starts, ownership, which is the the side of the organization that wanted to draft him, it wasn't it wasn't Gruden who wanted Haskins, it was the ownership side, they may not want to move on for him. When I look at the Chargers situation with Tyrod Taylor and Justin Herbert, I get why they're starting Taylor because in my opinion, Herbert is a prospect who has a great arm. He's really athletic but he has been inconsistent at times. And Tyrod Taylor, although he's never been great, he's shown that he knows how to win football games. I mean, he had a time in Buffalo where the roster itself wasn't that good, but he did a, he did a really good job managing the game and the talent around him and knowing, hey, this is my job. I don't have to go out there and win football games necessarily, but I can't lose us games. And for a lot of rookie quarterbacks, that's really important. You look at the Chargers, they're in a really tough division. You have the Chiefs obviously coming off the Super Bowl victory. I think I mentioned last week, the Broncos should be better this year. They have Drew Locke in his sophomore season. A lot of people think he's going to take that next step. He has an absolute rocket arm. They went all in on the offense this offseason, not only in free agency, but in the draft. And then you look at Oakland. 
this is going to be a really interesting season for them because it's kind of going to be a make it break it year for Derek Carr. They also went all in on offense with him. And so they're going to be a little bit more explosive. They have the new stadium in Oakland. And so I think for the Chargers, this is like, hey, let's use this year to really develop Herbert, both mentally in the classroom, learning from Tyrod, as well as probably on the field. I think the over-under that you had for Haskins, I kind of feel like that's similar with Tyrod. I think he probably makes it four to six games. And then you say, hey, at that point, they're probably sitting at two and four, three and three. Let's get Justin in. Let's see what he's got. Let's get him some forward momentum for next year. That quarterback situation is going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah. So right off the bat, I agree with the over-under. I don't I don't see Tyrod. The only way Tyrod lasts the entire season is if they're a playoff team, right? Like if they're late in the season, they're in the hunt for a playoff spot, then I see Tyrod still under center just simply from the fact that if you've had that type of success throughout the year, you're more than likely not going to switch out the most important position on the field, let alone for a rookie. So from that standpoint, I 100% agree. The thing with Tyrod for me, honestly, I think he's a solid player. I don't I don't think he's a guy that you would build a franchise around or he's a franchise quarterback Buffalo because they've been bad for so long prior to the Josh Allen era is they were desperate for a franchise quarterback and they paid him too fast. They paid him a lot of money. And a couple years later, he's, he's on the Browns. And so we all know what happened there. He got replaced by Baker Mayfield week three against the jets, obviously due to injury. However, I think he was going to get replaced regardless of that, but I think he's a solid player. I really do. I just don't think he's somebody that you're going to go, hey, this is our guy for the next decade, which at this point in his career, he's older, so you wouldn't do that anyway. But I'm just saying from a talent standpoint. Think with Justin Herbert. One thing you touched on that I really liked, which was even though he's a four-year starter, he's still super raw. There's nobody that's going to say Justin Herbert's ready right now, which is why I think it was a great move on the Chargers' part to draft him where they did because they knew he didn't have to be the starter day one. Now, I think because of how the league has transitioned from a veterans league to a younger league, I believe that Herbert is going to play at some point this year. And I do think that, like I said, the thing that's different and hard for me here is that I don't know where the Chargers are going to be because I think their roster is pretty elite. And so it could carry them to a position later in the year where they are in the playoff hunt, not because of Ty Rodby, but because their team is very, very talented. The roster, there was obviously a point in time this offseason where people thought that Tommy was going to go to the Chargers because he had a house in LA. He loves LA. He's from California. And the roster with the Chargers was ready to win now. And so I think with the loss of Darwin James, that's going to be a huge blow. People don't realize how impactful he is on the defensive side of the ball, but you still have Melvin Ingram and Joey Bosa. And I really, you know, adding Chris Harris Jr. at corner is still great. So they've got a really, really elite team. But if they are not in the playoff hunt by week six and they're like two and four or even to your point, three and three, I think we see a change. So Herbert's going to play at some point this year. I'm going to guess my educated guess. They're going to take I'm going to take the under on the six because I think that by week six, the Chargers are they're in a tough division. So I'm, I'm seeing a team like even Denver in the AFC West. I think the Raiders are going to be improved. It's a tough division. So then you obviously have the Chiefs, right? So um, for me, I'm like, well, if I'm if I'm if I'm guessing with limited knowledge right now because the season hasn't started, I'm going to say that Tyrod's out prior to Week Six and Herbert's going to get a shot just to change things up. And so I don't know how that's going to go, but Justin's in a way better spot than Haskins is. However, I just think Herbert's a way better prospect. And then the other job, which is probably your favorite one, because your beloved New England Patriots named Cam Newton the starting quarterback for week one, which you and I talked about. Was that ever really in question? No, that's what I'm saying. Everyone knew Cam was going to start, right? Like anyone saying Cam wasn't going to start, that's like all media driven. I mean, you don't sign the guy. You don't bring Cam Newton in if you're not going to give him a starting job. And I think that's why so many teams kind of struggled because even like Chicago, you're like, hey, why didn't Chicago like possibly make a run at, you know, Newton instead of trading for Foles? And I think the thought process there was like, oh, well, if he doesn't win the job where 
if you can't beat Trubisky out for a job, like that's kind of your own problem. Like, let's be honest at this point in Trubisky's career, maybe you don't want Cam in your quarterback room as a backup quarterback, but you look at the New England situation. I'm excited, man. I have, I still am trying to figure out what I think this season's going to look like. I have absolutely no idea. I'm hoping it's one of two scenarios. I'm hoping we either go like 13 and three or 10 and six and make the playoffs. If we go seven and nine, eight and eight, I'm going to be really bummed. But looking at the division, historically, never denied it. The AFC East over the past 20 years has consistently been one of, if not the worst divisions in football. You look at it again this year, Buffalo is going to be a little bit better, I think. I think the Stephon Diggs trade could really help out their offense. At the same time, they still are a run-dominant offense, and Josh Allen is going to need to prove consistently he can throw the ball down the field. He has the arm, but the accuracy at times has been somewhat of an issue. So can they take the next step? Even if not, though, they're really the only other team in the division, right? You look at Miami, they're really, really young. They're still probably two or three years away from rebuilding because they basically stripped the whole roster last year to get draft picks. You look at the Jet situation, and it's just bad, dude. Like, it's just a bad situation. It's probably the worst. Them and Washington, in my opinion, are the two worst-run organizations in football. Like, Cleveland's, probably from a talent standpoint, you consider it better run, but you look at what the Jets have done in Washington over the last, I'd say, what, five to ten years, and just the inconsistency at every single level, from management to the general manager to coaching to player development, why they sign certain players on a roster that doesn't really fit what they're trying to do, that situation to me is just doomed to fail. And so you look at New England, yes, they had more players opt out than any other team in the NFL, but they still have Cam. They have a good, they have a solid receiving core, good running backs. They have Michelle, they have White. The defense, I think, plays good enough as a team unit that even losing Hightower, they'll be able to be consistent. Do I think they're going to be a Super Bowl contender team? No, but I do think if Cam's healthy and he's 80% of MVP Cam, that they have at least a chance to make the playoffs, and it will be a really fun season to watch. And I'm really interested to see how McDaniels use Cam. Do they use him like Carolina? Is it kind of a hybrid? Does he go Tebow like with the Gators? It's going to be fun to watch. I love this move. I'm going to continue to double down on it. A lot of people think that Cam is injury prone or he's done, but if he's going to go to any situation, this was by far the best situation because Josh McDaniels to me is one of, he's been overlooked because of his time in Denver when he got hired as the head coach there at a super young age. A lot of people don't remember that, but He's been the O coordinator in New England for quite some time now. And at one point, he was really the Kyle Shanahan uh, over a decade ago. And now we're looking at, you know, he obviously was a head coaching candidate last offseason, ended up signing or committing to the, the Indianapolis Colts and then backed out last minute. And so this guy's an elite offensive mind and he knows what to do with Cam Newton. Here's my thing about this situation. It's either going to work or it's not going to work. I don't think there's going to be any gray area or middle ground on this. And that's simply because is Cam going to be, I don't, again, let's not talk about 2015 because I believe that was an anomaly year. I don't think that's who Cam is. However, I still think Cam is a really, really, really good quarterback. So I'm not saying that in a negative light because look, he had an, an all time year in 2015 so it's okay to not say that that's who like it's not it's okay for me to say that's not who Cam is consistently but Cam can still be a top 15 quarterback in this league. And the fact that people still say hey he's injury prone or I'm concerned with injury, this guy's been an absolute warrior his entire career. It's not his fault that Carolina had nobody around him and basically used him as their quarterback and running back. Look, I don't care if you're 6'5" 240 250 like he is. Getting beat up week in and week out over a seven, eight-year period, your body, it's going to take a toll on your body. That's just a fact. It doesn't matter if LeBron's a quarterback and he's being put through the gauntlet like that. Your body can only take so much punishment. So I love this move. I think it's going to work. I do believe that it's either going to be a 10-11 win season because you don't want a six or seven win season. If you're going to, if you're going to, if this is going to be a bad experiment, you want to win like two, three games because you want to have a shot at, at one of these quarterbacks. So some other news that came out 
yesterday, massive news, was the signing of Hall of Fame point guard Steve Nash to be the next head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. And Dust, personally, hate this move. I absolutely can't stand it because I don't see where Steve Nash fits into this equation. And here's why I'm saying that. It's not because of KD. It's because of Kyrie. Kyrie Irving is an absolute nightmare. Every team he's been on, he's been a cancer to the locker room. Early on, because in every player's career, pretty much, you pretty much keep your mouth shut, right? And you just play. Then when you start to get notoriety, you become uh, an influential face of a league like Kyrie did really probably the year prior to LeBron. People noticed, hey, this guy's, this guy's going to be great. He's going to be elite. And then LeBron comes there. Of course, it then became LeBron's team again. So Kyrie wasn't the Batman. And they were never going to win anything with just Kyrie anyway. But at least at that point in time, people were already starting to talk about this guy being one of the elite players in the NBA, not just an elite point guard. Really after that point, you saw what happened with the relationship between him and LeBron and how that situation ended abruptly. Then he goes to Boston for two years. Also a guy that's been injury prone pretty much the majority of his career. Then he's a cancer to that locker room. He goes to Brooklyn this season, gets hurt again. I don't know what's going to happen with him, to be honest, because if he stays healthy, is he one of the top players in the NBA? There's no doubt. But the good news is he doesn't have to be Batman. The problem is KD is not LeBron. And what I mean by that is he's not the leader LeBron is. KD's very passive. That's what people don't realize about the Golden State situation. They're like, well, it worked in Golden State. Well, it worked in Golden State because that wasn't KD's team. That was Steph's team. Steph was the leader of that team. KD was the best player on the team. But just because you're the best player doesn't mean you are the leader. And Steve Nash, in my opinion, not having any coaching experience is a concern, but not a massive concern. My concern is how is he going? Because at the end of the day, he's just going to have to navigate these two guys. He knows the X's and O's of basketball better than most. Steve Nash is an all-time elite point guard. So it's not, it's not a lack of knowledge of the game. It's going to be how does he lead these two superstars? So for me, I actually, the more I looked into it yesterday, I actually really love it. And because of your Kyrie point that you made, I don't think you can get a head coach based on Kyrie Irving because I don't know what head coach you sign that solves the Kyrie Irving problem. You could say, hey, Jason Kidd, he has coaching experience. Well, the coaching experience Jason Kidd shows me was, hey, the guy has a really bad EQ and he doesn't know how to coach because he was terrible in his first stint. And then in Milwaukee, he had Giannis, he had more talent around him, but he still wasn't that great. When you look at a guy like Ty Lue, yeah, Ty Lue worked in Cleveland, but a lot of that was LeBron and he wasn't close enough to Kyrie to keep Kyrie in Cleveland. And Kyrie ultimately demanded a trade and went to Boston. So when I look at the LeBron KD scenario, although I agree with you in the aspect where LeBron probably does a better job holding teammates accountable, I also think because LeBron's expectation on himself and others is so high, at times I think when you're a superstar, it's hard playing with LeBron because one of the things Kyrie said about the situation in Cleveland is it just wasn't fun. Like every game was so important. And I get that if at the end of the day, winning championships is what matters. But I don't think every single player is wired that winning is more important than everything else. And I think Kyrie is one of those guys. I think Kyrie wants to go out there, ball and have fun. And I think KD to an extent is kind of in that mold as well. And he already has the rings from Golden State. He was involved in player development with the Warriors for two years. He was a consultant for the team with their historic 73-9 and nine season and then got his only NBA quote-unquote ring during their 2017 run. He also spent time from 2012 to 2019 as a general manager for the Canadian national team. So when I look at that, I say, okay, he's had some level of experience handling a roster, different players and things like that. And so for me, the biggest reason I like this is I don't think there's a head coach that you could sign and go, okay, this guy gets Kyrie. Is Kyrie going to play under that type of dictator of a head coach? We've seen it even with Bill Belichick. I mean, Brady cared so much about winning that he was willing to deal with Belichick. At the end of the day, this probably puts me in the best situation to win. So I'm going to put up with it, even if I'm absolutely miserable for a decade. But Brady's generation and Kyrie's generation are different. 
right? Kyrie's of the millennial mold where, bro, it's about me. I want to have fun. I just want to do life. So don't tell me what you can do. And so when I look at Steve Nash, he seems to me to be a guy that gets the younger generation. He's played with a lot of talented players. He's played with Kobe. He's had to deal with that. And so, yeah, it's scary in some senses because he doesn't have the experience. But if there's a guy I'm going to go with looking at the coaching carousel this year with Jason Kidd, Ty Lue, even a Mark Jackson type coach, he seems to be a guy that's a little harder on his players. And Kyrie's a type of guy where I feel like you have to just kind of like let him fly. It's going to be interesting to see, but but I like it. So I'm going to get into my pick of the day. And my pick of the day is the dominance of LeBron James throughout the playoffs. And so one of the arguments people talk about all the time is, hey, Michael Jordan has six rings. And the ring argument for any athlete is easy, right? You can do it for Brady. People have done it for Montana, MJ. It's part of the reason Charles Barkley gets no love, right? Charles Barkley is probably one of the most disrespected players in the history of basketball because he has no rings. But I was looking up different things because of Chris Paul obviously get eliminated with Oklahoma City against the Rockets. And I was saying, hey, which players have really dominated consistently in the playoffs? And LeBron James' level of dominance was even greater than I thought. And so I'm going to go over the top five players currently in the NBA with their playoff winning series, and LeBron blows them out of the water. So LeBron has won 37 playoff series throughout his career. Let me put that into perspective. LeBron's still playing, so if they win this year, they win the title, he'll win 40 playoff series. Michael Jordan only won 30 for his whole career. You look at the next guy on the list, Durant, he's only won 19. So by the end of this postseason, LeBron will probably double Kevin Durant in postseason series wins. Kawhi Leonard, 18. Steph Curry, 16. James Harden, 12. And so it's not just the stats, it's not just the championships, but it's his longevity and it's his ability to win year in and year out, which I think is something that gets really disrespected when we talk about him historically. And to be honest, his numbers are just really impressive. LeBron has racked up a lot of stats and He's done stuff that's never been done before. Came into the NBA straight out of high school. So he had two or three years on MJ to start his career. Again, I still feel like LeBron, if we're talking just basketball player, is the better basketball player. I've always said that and I will always stick to that. But there are some things about MJ that just flat out are better than LeBron. But everything LeBron does is impressive. This Lakers team is bad. And it concerns me. I don't know if they're going to be able to win a championship. It's not going to be because of LeBron or AD. It's going to be because of the supporting cast. And so if you take AD off this team, this team's just as bad as the Cleveland teams before he left to Miami. So I don't know what it's going to take for LeBron to get the, the recognition and honor he deserves as a basketball player. So many people focus on the finals record and just dispute everything else about his career. But they don't look at the context. It's just, we look at the service level stats of your three and six in the NBA finals, but not talking about going to the finals for nine straight years or averaging a triple double. Or, I mean, so it's just like the list goes on with LeBron. And so I just don't, even thinking about this season, the Eastern Conference being better than it at least has been in, in, the, recent, in the recent history of that conference. And LeBron leaving the East and going West. And now people saying that the West isn't that strong this year. And I'm just like, he can't catch a break. And to me, that's a sure sign of greatness is when you try to find every little thing that's wrong with somebody, because you know, they're so great that it's easier to make the argument that they're great because it's obvious. You have to find something about LeBron that isn't great. And look, I'm not saying he's the perfect basketball player, not saying there's no holes in his game, but to just like to hear people say like Paul Pierce that he's not in a top five. I mean, it's just Paul Pierce is just a hater because no, he's of one course. third of the player he is. Paul Pierce came out and said that he founded essentially the step back. Like, stop it, Paul Pierce. Like, nobody knew who you were until KG and Ray Allen came to town. Okay. You were like a you were like a good player in the NBA. You were an all-star, but like you weren't going to be an all-time great. So 
you you won one ring. Like, congrats. You were with an all-time franchise and won one ring. Paul Pierce has always killed me because he gets one ring and now everyone's acting like Carmelo Anthony's a scrub. Everybody and their mom takes Carmelo Anthony over Paul Pierce. Paul Pierce is a nice piece, but to your point, if KG doesn't come there and Ray Allen doesn't come there and Rondo doesn't evolve and they don't have that bench, historically, he's probably not even a top 100 player. Like when you honestly really think about it, you look at how stacked historically the small forward position is. I mean, just to rattle off names, you got LeBron, Pippen, Durant, Leonard, Paul George, Carmelo Anthony. He's probably not a top 100 player all time, but he gets his one ring. And now people are like, oh no, Paul Pierce was really good. But team winning does not dictate an individual player's ability to show their greatness. So getting into my pick of the day, I'm going to give some credit to Tom Brady again. So Bill Belichick just recently came out and said, no one works harder than Cam Newton. And I honestly don't feel like this quote was just about the current situation in New England. I really feel like this was a shot at Tom Brady because he never came out and said that about Tom. He never said Tom's the hardest worker in the room. And everybody knows Tom's the hardest worker in the room. He's first in, last out. Guy watches, if you've watched Tom versus time, if you haven't, go to Facebook, watch and watch Tom versus time. And you'll see this guy's a machine. Not only the way that he prepares for games, the way that he takes care of his body. So to never say that about Tom, or at least I don't remember or recall a time where Bill publicly said, hey, Tom is the hardest worker in the room. And two months into the Cam Newton era, and he's already saying this. Now, look, I'm reading into it a little bit. I understand that it might not be about Tom Brady, but because Tom left, went to Tampa, Bill starting anew with Cam Newton. It just seems a little fishy to me. So look, I'm happy for Cam. I think he's in a good situation as we just talked about a few minutes ago. However, to say that Cam is a harder worker than Tom Brady is just not true. And for Bill to say that to me just shows even the further disrespect that he has for Tom Brady. Like I I really, but his ego is so big that he won't allow himself to go there and say, Tom saved my career. I think Bill's a great coach. Don't, don't get me wrong. Bill's an incredible coach. He's the best coach of all time. But there's been a lot of great head coaches in the NFL that never won. You're the greatest quarterback of all time. There's no way. There's absolutely no way that Bill wins a Super Bowl without Tom Brady. Unless he had like Aaron Rodgers or some other elite quarterback. But it's to me, it's just very sad the way that he treated him. And you know what? At the end of it, I think that 10, 15, 20 years from now, I hope Bill sees the way that he treated him, sees the way that he tried to make it about the team 100% of the time. It's never about one individual player. And that old school way of thinking and that old style of coaching to me doesn't work. And so you could obviously say, oh, well, it obviously worked. They won six Super Bowls. Again, they don't win those Super Bowls without Tom. Okay. I think Tom still wins Super Bowls without Bill. 100% do. Because to your point, the players are the ones who execute on the field. Now, the coaches come up with a game plan. But as we've seen many times, especially with a guy like Tom, Tom is so smart that he could come up with a game plan himself. Guys like Peyton Manning can come up with a game plan himself. They don't really need a head coach or an offensive coordinator to say, hey, this is what you need to do. And they're like, oh, yeah, I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to follow your game plan. So again, I'm not saying that Tom didn't need that earlier in his career. He 100% did. But a guy that's played for 20 years in the league, it's been a while since Tom was in a place where he was like, yeah, I'm not fully at a point in my career where there isn't a defense that I haven't seen. But he's been in that place for quite some time. So again, I'm not trying to go on a bill bashing tangent, but it's very sad to me that we see one of the greatest runs in NFL history and it end the way that it did. I don't think we'll ever see anything like it again. And it's made people delusional. I've said this to you off air and the fact that Tom's won sixth, the dominance that they had for two decades, people are, that's why people are putting Patrick Mahomes into that conversation is because of the success that Tom and Bill had with the Patriots. Look, winning a Super Bowl to me, is the hardest thing in sports from a team sports standpoint. It's the hardest thing to do. And they're going to, and not only the the Kansas City Chiefs, but Patrick Mahomes are going to find that out. Andy Reid finally won his first Super Bowl. 
Andy Reid's had really great teams that he's coached with the Eagles. Really, really great teams. It's so hard to do it. To win six, to go to nine is incredibly difficult. So again, I want to say that because I know Bill was a part of that. And Bill was part of the reason why they were able to accomplish that. I'm not saying any coach could have been inserted into that equation and Tom wins six. I'm just saying the disrespect that I've seen put on Tom's name and the way that he's handled this for 20 years, never seen anything like it. Bill's doubling down, man. When you look at it, I think initially he was like, okay, Brady goes to Tampa, not sure what's going to happen. But then you saw the moves Tampa made. I think that's the main reason they signed Newton, just because Bill's like, Tampa has a chance to be really good the next two or three years. And because of the division we're in, there's a real chance that if we don't sign Cam, we could still possibly go six and 10, not get a franchise quarterback. And then I'm screwed for the next 10 years. So if you get me a guy like Cam, who's talented, it may be enough for me to get into the playoffs, buy me a few more years. And that way my legacy doesn't take a huge hit. Well, coming up on the, on the podcast today, we have two really interesting topics we want to get into. The rising superstars in Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell, as well as Miami and Boston. Both teams are cruising through the Eastern Conference Finals and look like it's destiny they'll meet in the Eastern Conference Finals. Cole and I are going to break down these two interesting topics. So Utah-Denver was one of the best series I've seen, in my opinion, since Golden State Cleveland seven games championships when LeBron won that epic 3-1 comeback. I'm not saying it because it's easy because this was a 3-1 comeback, but that series was so entertaining. We saw two guys in Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell really step up. So I asked Cole, hey, who would you take? You can have either one of these guys on your on your roster. Obviously, Cole's a Mavericks fan. And the equation I gave him was, hey, you could have Jamal Murray, you could have Donovan Mitchell, not just on the Mavs, but any team, which guy are you taking? For me, I'll start. It was really hard for me. I felt like it was close based upon this specific series. But over both of their careers, I think consistently Donovan stuck out a little bit more for me. And there's two main reasons. Number one, athletically, I think he's a different animal than Jamal. You can make a case that Jamal, at this point in their career, Maybe a little bit more skilled. He may have a little better dribble, more consistent jump shot. But Donovan Mitchell's athleticism to me, it's not quite on Russell Westbrook's level, but it's really close. He's so explosive. He can kind of get to the cup at will. But for me, the biggest reason I was siding with Mitchell is he's done so much more with less when you look at the Utah team. Nobody really gave Utah a chance in this series. And the only reason they were in it was because of Donovan Mitchell. You look at Jamal Murray, the Nuggets have done an incredible job, partly because players have fallen so much in the draft, but he's been around a lot of really good offensively talented players where teams obviously have him as a focal point, but they're not completely centering their game plan around him. Where when you look at Donovan Mitchell, Everything that a team does defensively centers around him because you're not creating your game plan about around Rudy Gobert. You're trying to slow down Donovan Mitchell because he's the cog that keeps that ignition running. And so for me, I love Donovan. Both guys are 23. I don't think you can go wrong with either or, but Donovan has shown me flashes that remind me of an old Dwayne Wade. And at this point, Donovan's actually a better shooter than Wade was throughout his whole career. And so I'm not saying he's going to be D-Wade because D-Wade was great consistently for 10 years, but I think Donovan has a legit opportunity to be one of the best two guards in the league in the next two to three years. The one thing you touched on is that you really can't go wrong either way here. I do disagree with you on the pick, but it's not a massive disagreement just because you really can't go wrong because I think they're really two different players. So essentially it's like saying, in their primes talking about D Wade and LeBron. They're two different players. Okay. So, and you can't go wrong with either. Like if you're going to have D Wade, great. If you're going to have LeBron, great. When I look at Jamal though, I just think he's a more complete player. The thing, and, and he's six, four, right in this league, not saying that smaller guards can't be effective. Donovan proved that, right? He's proved it since the moment he stepped on the court. He proved it in this series. So I'm not saying there isn't evidence that Donovan Mitchell is a great player. There is. It's just a fact. 
When I look at Jamal Murray, though, you look at a complete guy who was really coming out of Kentucky was more of a two guard. They've transitioned him to the one, and I think he's better suited for that. But let's not talk about stats for just a moment, because if I'm talking about this, I want to talk about it in the context of eye test. Donovan Mitchell, you give him the nod on the athletic side, right? You talked about his athleticism. It's great. He won the dunk contest in 2018. But when I look at Jamal Murray's game, handles better than Donovan. Shooter, better than Donovan. Better finisher at the rim, in my opinion. Donovan's a great finisher because of his athleticism. But if you, if you watched this 360 layup on Gobert that Jamal Murray completed, I think it was game three or four, Donovan Mitchell's not doing anything like that. So, and again, I think that goes back to size, right? Six, one and six, four. You're talking about a three inch difference, right? And even to your point about Donovan Mitchell having less talent around him, I do agree with that. But also when you look at Denver's roster, to me, these guys are so raw and young, even though on paper, you're like, okay, you got Michael Porter Jr. You've got Jokic. Now Jokic has been established for a few, few years now, but if you really look at Jamal Murray and Jokic and Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert, that's really the same in terms of not the players skill sets, but it's really a two man show. Okay. Because Michael Porter Jr. This is his rookie year. He got drafted two years ago. But he came off back surgery. And then you look at guys like Jordan Clarkson that they added this season. They got Bogdanovich. You've got Joe Ingles. They added Mike Conley. So I know that Donovan didn't have Conley and Clarkson last year, but they've made some great additions. So I wouldn't necessarily say that Utah at this point is far less superior talent-wise than the Nuggets. I think the Nuggets on paper, you would say, yeah, they're better, but a lot of those guys aren't fully developed. And even though I think Michael Porter Jr. is going to be an absolute superstar in this league, he's still a few years away. To me, when I look at when I look at the Denver Nuggets getting blown out last night by the Clippers, might I add, I don't I don't see the matchup between the Utah Jazz and the Denver Nuggets as a huge discrepancy talent wise. And so I don't I don't feel like Jamal Murray's had this huge lift offensively from other players around him, other than Jokic. If you go back and you do talk about stats and you look at the Utah series. Outside of Jokic and Jamal Murray, they had some guys that were streaky scorers like Michael Porter Jr. And you go, okay, like there was some help in certain aspects of that series, but those two guys carried the Denver offense. And so to me, to that point, I just don't feel like there's enough of a discrepancy for me to go, yeah, Donovan Mitchell has far less talent. I mean, Rudy Gobert is a two-time defensive player of the year. Jokic doesn't play defense. So even though you could say, okay, well, Jokic doesn't play great defense and Rudy Gobert is a two-time defensive player of the year, Jokic is a far better offensive player than Rudy Gobert. So you could you could make that argument both ways. But, you know, guys like Bull Bull, right? People are like, oh, he's the next KD, which is crazy after one, you know, seeding game. Or actually, that was a preseason game. So that's like obviously a, a, a w- way too premature to even say something like that. But, you know, Jeremy Grant's been a streaky scorer. You know, Gary Harris just came back off injury. Paul Millsap at this stage in his career as a veteran, not going to give you 20 a night. And so to me, who, what guy to me is going to be a more complete player going forward? And I just feel like Jamal Murray's that guy. But again, to end this argument, I'm not saying I don't like Donovan Mitchell. I'm actually saying I was wrong about Donovan Mitchell because a few podcasts back, I said I wasn't super high on him and I wouldn't start a team with him because to me, a six, one, two guard is just not a guy that I want to build my team around. But he plays with so much heart and grit, and I love that. And he's a far better shooter than I gave him credit for. So I tip my hat to him. And honestly, you can't go wrong with this one. I'm just gonna I'm gonna lean towards Jamal because I love his game and I think he's more complete. So we've been high on Miami. We haven't been shy about it. Boston to me was one of the teams that was really hard to gauge just because so much of their talent is so young. Yes, Toronto got the buzzer beater win last night, but it doesn't make me feel any better than Toronto because the Celtics were really in charge of that game for the large majority. They were 0.5 seconds away from being up 3-0 and probably sweeping their way to the Eastern Conference Finals. And so for me, I'm expecting to see a Miami-Boston Eastern Conference Finals. And I think... It could be a really, really good series. I could see this series possibly going six or seven. The biggest thing is 
can Gordon Hayward get back and healthy? Because if he can get back and healthy, you look at the depth on both of these rosters. We've talked about Miami's depth extensively for three or four podcasts, so I'm not going to bore people. But when you look at the Celtics, you have Tatum, you have Brown, you have Marcus Smart. Then if you can get Hayward back, it's going to be really interesting to see how these teams match up. I'm still going to stick with Miami. They're our dark horse. They're our Cinderella story. I want to see a Miami... Lakers finals and if Miami can beat LeBron after he left them that would be absolutely hilarious Pat Riley would probably be on his all-time high but both teams have been really exciting to watch it looks like Boston's taking that next step even if they don't win the Eastern Conference finals if they can make it to there and they can get Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown that exposure is really going to cement them as a team that's going to be in the running for a championship, at least an Eastern Conference title over the next five to 10 years, probably with Miami. And then if Miami, there's rumors coming out now that if Milwaukee loses, the front runners for Giannis are Miami and Toronto. That's going to be really interesting to see how that shakes out because obviously Miami has a lot of depth. They're going to have to probably move pieces. I think they wouldn't move Bam or Jimmy Butler. So you'd probably have that as your big three. You'd lose some of your depth so that could get really, really interesting as well. I also heard there's a small rumor came from Brian Scalabrini, so take it for what it's worth that he thinks Giannis could possibly go to the Mavericks, which I know you don't absolutely love that because of his lack of perimeter shooting, but regardless to say, there looks like there's a good chance that Giannis will be on the move, but what's your thoughts on Miami? Obviously, we both love them, and then Boston with how dominant they've looked consistently against Toronto this, this series. Yeah, I to me... I, it concerns me about Boston down the down the stretch. If they get into the Eastern Conference Finals, which they were essentially a buzzer beater away yesterday from going up 3-0 against Toronto. So I was wrong about that when I thought Toronto was going to make a run at the Eastern Conference Finals and then potentially get into the finals. But I was definitely wrong about that. Not that the series is over, but Boston's really been the more dominant team for all three games. So I love Boston. I love their squad. I just think they're still pretty young. And you could say the same about, about Miami, but... I just trust them more because of the organization, because of Pat Riley, because of Jimmy Butler. Spolstra has been there, done that. Brad Stevens hasn't. Okay. And so you really could go either way on this one. It's probably going to go seven, but I still like Miami. I just think the way that they've dominated Milwaukee through two games, it's looked effortless. That's the scary thing. Because even though I'm not massively high on Giannis, as the best player in the NBA. Like he's obviously a top 10 player in the league, but defensively, they're so elite all season long. They're the best defensive team in the NBA. And Miami's having no issues at all. And outside of Jimmy Butler, who really this season offensively had one of his worst years. And the rest of those guys are very young. Tyler Hero, Duncan Robinson, Kendrick Nunn. Then you have, of course, Bam Adebayo, who really just burst on the scene this year. So they're still super, super young. But there's just something about this team. You feel it. Like every year in every sport in the playoffs, you can feel it with a certain team. And I feel like Miami's that squad. And it's going to be a really fun series. But I think Miami's going to pull this one out. And I think they're going to get to the finals. And it's I can't wait to watch this series. Because I don't want to watch Toronto and Miami. So anyway, this is going to wrap things up for episode 34 of the DNC podcast. Again, be sure to rate, review, subscribe to the pod, share it with your friends and family. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at DNC podcast. Send us your topic ideas. Send us some questions. Anything you would like us to cover on the show, we will do so. We'll see you Monday. Have a great weekend.